Welcome to Deep Breath In, the new podcast series from the BMJ, sponsored by Medical Protection, that tackles the everyday challenges of being a GP. And right now, those challenges seem to be mostly to do with coronavirus. So that's where we're going to start. Today, we're looking at coronavirus video consultations. We'll be talking to Trish Greenhalgh, a leading researcher of the video consultation, and to Fiona Stevenson, a medical sociologist. We'll learn how to do video consulting safely and ask what we might be losing out on. I'm Tom Nolan, a GP in London and a clinical editor for the BMJ. And today I'm joined by... Hi, I'm Jenny Rasanathan. I'm a family medicine doctor from Michigan in the United States, but I live and work in Phnom Penh, Cambodia. And I also work as the clinical editor for the BMJ education section. Thanks, Jenny. And we've got a second person on our panel today. <laughs> Hi, I'm Navjot Lada. I'm also um, a GP. I work as a locum in London um, and I work at the BMJ as the head of education. Thank you for joining us today. Um, so today on our first episode, we thought we'd better talk about coronavirus. Not only is that the only thing we're really thinking about or talking about at the moment, but also in the space of just a few weeks, I feel like it's completely changed general practice. So what's changed for you, Jenny? I think the better question is what hasn't changed? Um, <laughs> I, I recently made the decision to move from seeing patients as I would normally do to only seeing patients remotely in an effort to keep my patients, my uh, family, and my coworkers safe, trying to reduce patient flow through the clinic and trying to prioritize only seeing in person patients who really need to be seen. Um, and so that has presented a host of challenges including how do you accurately assess somebody's respiratory status over the phone or through a video? And how can you make yourself present emotionally and um, kind of mentally with patients while also respecting any semblance of work-life balance? Um, everything is different. <laughs> and what do you think, uh, Navjoit? What's changed? Yeah, same. So trying to navigate this new world of doing more things remotely. And also, I think something I haven't felt probably since I was a trainee, but managing my own anxiety as well about, um, you know, seeing patients um, being exposed to risk or exposing others as well to the, the risks. Um, so it's all, yeah, it's all a bit more fraught, I think, than it than it has been for a while. Yeah. Well, um, our second episode is going to be about fear. Uh, so that should cover the anxiety. And actually today we're talking about um, exactly what, what you're mentioning there, Jenny, about working remotely and in particular uh, video consultations. Oh, great. Um, so, uh, of course, like enthusiasts, I feel like people have been talking about you know, telemedicine and video consultations for years, um, but only the kind of like, well, noisy minority of enthusiasts kind of, kind of, seem to, to to actually make it happen and I think for the rest of us I've been a bit sort of dragging my heels a bit um I, I think partly because I just I think 
probably one of the parts of the job that's still the most rewarding is seeing people in person and that that face-to-face contact you have. Um, but I guess there's nothing like a, a sort of killer virus to, to sort of stop you being sentimental. What do you think? Or to force our hands to finally force us to make the leap in so many ways that some people wanted to make earlier. It's almost like, you know, for anybody out there working remotely right now, it was always kind of feasible and we had the technologies in theory, but now organizations of all kinds that have never actually considered working remotely are doing it. Yeah. And I mean, it's been incredible how all of that red tape around, you know, bringing in new technology, doing things differently seems to have vanished remarkably quickly. And we're seeing kind of technology introduced really, really quickly. It's amazing. All the kind of, you can't use WhatsApp, you can't use WhatsApp. And then suddenly just use WhatsApp, just do whatever you need to. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Which, which for me, like, the, the whole WhatsApp and, and data protection side of it, like to patients, they ne- ne- I've never really come across a patient who was that bothered about receiving an email from me or, you know, even like WhatsApp or other, other you know, things that they use day to day in the rest of their lives. So I feel like that's more like us catching up with that maybe. Oh, for sure. I mean, I think that has the reluctance has always, I've got the sense has always been on the side of, um, practitioners. I mean, with good, you know, there have been good arguments sometimes about the kind of inequity that it can introduce and, um, you know, the, the data protection con- uh, considerations, I think, still are important. But what we're seeing now is actually there. there's a real value there that, um, you know, we, we, that means we should try and work through some of those issues. I also think it's a all hands on deck kind of moment. Um, I don't know if you guys have felt this way, but several of my co-residents from my residency training are still practicing in New York City, which is basically the epicenter of the global pandemic right now. And seeing some of the messages they're putting onto social media make me want to absolutely break down and weep. Um, And it's all that I can do to feel like I am doing my part by blurring those boundaries between my work hours and the rest of my life in order to feel those calls and take those messages via any means necessary just to try to help people get along in this time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's a real role for primary care here in kind of helping our secondary care colleagues who are really dealing with the, you know, the the brunt of of this all that, that we can do you know that that gatekeeping role that primary care does so well in so many places and trying to manage and support people in the community so so yeah so so, um so let's move on to to think a bit more about the video consultation um i mean have either of you been doing these already or um do you feel confident doing a video consultation right now um well i'll just say that i it wasn't um so i did a kind of combined telephone call and video consultation with one of my patients today and actually yesterday. So it was kind of serial visits um, over the past couple days. And, you know, there are, there's only so much that you can actually visibly tell from a video of questionable quality. I found myself going back to this idea of you're speaking full sentences so therefore you must be okay. And um, through one of 
her friends, my patient was actually able to obtain um, an oxygen saturation monitor and so was able to tell me later this afternoon that she was satting just fine. But I felt a lot of relief and it's all, it was like without those numbers, I couldn't trust my impression from the telephone. Yeah. So coming up, um, because you mentioned that, we've got a a really nice interview with Trish Greenhalgh, who um, has done a lot of research on the video consultation uh, and has written a, a, what I think is a great paper for the the BMJ, (laughs) Uh, slightly biased, but um, sort of describing how you would do a video consultation with someone with COVID-19 or potentially has that. Um, and, and yeah, we, we, we covered some of that stuff. So let's see if we can reassure you a bit on that uh, in, in, in a little bit. Uh, and the other thing that I, I think is interesting about this is because we're not really seeing anyone face to face about all the usual stuff we, we've assumed we have to see people face to face for for years. What do you what do you make of that, Navjoy? Yeah, I mean, I think it's so interesting seeing um, the figures on people who are health seeking at the moment from GPs in A&E. And you just think, well, is that because people are kind of want, you know, they're staying at home and they don't want to, you know, they they just want to stay at home and don't want to kind of come out and, and bother bother their um doctors because they they know that they're busy or is it you know that they're just trying to manage stuff at home and you know all those things that we see usually are still happening but they're just people aren't just presenting um or is there this kind of you know are people actually fine <laughs> you know I'm sure it's a mix of all those things um but it, I just think like at some point you would imagine all the usual stuff that primary care does you know chronic disease management health promotion and prevention um all of that like where that that's got to fit in with everything else and i worry i don't know when that will all happen and you know all the contact that we have with patients how will we regain that Mm. or or not i guess i mean there are some people um we have an interview with iona heath in another episode who um is one of the people who who talks about how we've you know over medicalized you know whole generations of, of people with labels like hypertension without enough kind of good medical reason to um or that the evidence maybe doesn't sort of quite stack up to to make it worth us doing that so um maybe this is an opportunity to kind of reset things in that respect well Jenny. it's interesting thinking about you know trying to make decisions about which patients absolutely need to come in and which patients can safely stay at home. Because if we're able to safely manage a vast number of patients remotely now, exactly to your point, Tom, like what's to say that they couldn't just continue to get their care remotely, you know, when the COVID pandemic is no longer so active or even there? I think there is like a real opportunity to kind of reset and lose some of that low value stuff if we can really identify what that is. I guess the question I have is, well, what do we lose? You know, do we know what we're going to lose by, you know, doing doing more remotely? What um, what are the consequences of that, both intended and unintended? We'll be back very soon finding out what we might be missing when we can't physically examine a patient. But before that, a note from our sponsors. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. You're always a GP 
whether you're meeting up with friends, relaxing at home, or going to the gym. Being a GP is part of who you are, whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice, available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. We go beyond clinical negligence claims to offer advice and representation for GMC inquiries and coroner's inquests. We even offer CPD accredited courses at no extra cost. It's the protection your career deserves, all under one roof. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out more. And now, back to Fiona Stevenson, medical sociologist, on what a physical examination actually means. So I'm um, Fiona Stevenson, and I'm a professor of medical sociology, and I work at um, UCL and I'm co-director of the eHealth Unit. Um, so you're, we're talking today about uh, examination. Um, so I'm really interested in, you know, we know there's some other part to it. We know there's a sort of ritual of the examination, but you know, what, what might we be losing out on if we stop examining our patients? So what I would say is when people go to a consultation, they have certain expectations about what's going to happen. Um, and we both, you have an understanding of what you'll provide as a doctor, but a patient has an understanding of what they would expect to happen. Um, and for many people to be examined is part of that. And one of the things, it's not just about what people want. Doctors use examinations as well, particularly, so work in terms of respiratory infections, your upper respiratory tract infections. Um, there's some really nice work done by John Heritage and Tanya Stivers but on the idea of an online commentary. Um, so what you can do is you'll examine your patient and then you can give them cues as to what you what is wrong with them. So do they have a do they have an infection? Do they need antibiotics? And a lot of those cues are given in a con during an examination. So um, if it, so a doctor may say, oh, I can hear a crackles, I hear crackles, that's suggesting that's going to lead to uh, antibiotics. Or they can say, oh, you know, your ears are nice and clear today, or your chest is clear. Um, those kind of things, they all happen during an examination. So it's it's quite a complex process in relation to examinations. Yeah, I often find when I'm on the, on the phone to a parent of a child, you know, they, they say they're talking about their child's cough. And, you know, when I've got time to see that, child I know it's going to be a much shorter appointment because yeah. the examination is uh, is probably what the parent wants and and probably is a bit of a shortcut um I probably spend a lot longer on the phone trying to persuade you know persuade yeah. but going through that with a parent than I would in person because we can go straight to the examination and they might be out the door sooner is, is that the sort of thing you mean with the the cues that the doctor makes and i think very much like you say it doesn't necessarily make it any quicker because there's lots more explanation to be done it's much harder to reassure somebody over the phone without seeing them we are used to having that i mean ever since ever since we've had that whole practice of medicine if you go you know right the way back to the kind of rituals of medicine and how the history of medicine and how it developed 
it was really around, um, you know, doctors examining patients regardless of whether they could actually do anything for them. So, um, you know, some of the work that, the, or some of the theory around what happens in medical practice and the order of the position of the patient in in terms of doctors. Um, so the work of Dusen, who talks about the disappearance of the patient from medical cosmology, is around the fact that it needs to all just be around the patient and looking at the patient, examining the patient, um, before you actually have any kind of treatment. And so we've moved away from that and now we have these treatments. But I think that idea that you need to look and see and understand what's actually happened, first of all, is actually quite important as well. Um, so I think there is a ritual around it for doctors and for patients. And so there's all this push at the moment to do more, on, like you say, on the phone, yeah. in, on, on, on video. Like, um, yeah. and, and we're seeing it now with with coronavirus yeah everyone's saying well this means we must go to to video and uh, and telephone um are you saying that actually that's going to take us more time and make it make things more difficult for us do you think so i think coronavirus is going to be really interesting in terms of the fact that it provides a reason for actually doing it by phone or doing it by video um and some doctors seem to really like it but a lot of them just seem to think that it's finding a lot more time to be able to do that um and i think we'll run on the same issue that we have with nhs you know direct or 111 or whatever the latest element of it is that we're calling it that um it's really difficult to be sure on the phone um and i think every i think we'll look no doctor um just as no patient wants to be that case that's missed so i think often you know people that, that i think that's why you end up with more consultations because i don't think it's all just about patients wanting to be seen i think it's also about doctors wanting to make sure they haven't missed anything and i think it's incredibly hard because a lot of what's going on in a consultation is about that interaction, that communication, and that's what makes the difference. That's how you understand what's going on with somebody. Um, and we lose that because on the phone, it's just not the same. I think when we're, if we look at, if we want to do things remotely, we need to look at what would work really well remotely, just like, you know, what works well to be able to just do things, you know, so request a repeat prescription, you know, doing that online is much easier. Picking up test results would obviously be much easier. But um, other things where you actually want some advice and you want to speak to someone about what the problem is, um, I think it's much more problematic because it's about that. It's really about interaction and communication that makes us understand both both allows the doctor to understand what the patient's worried about. And that is what a lot of research is about. A lot of the stuff I've spent my whole life researching on is about expectations, misunderstandings, Mr. Genders, and all these things. You're not going to get any of those um, if you're doing it all, trying to do it very quickly, remotely, or trying to do it over the phone. So just maybe just one other thing, just about making people feel better and the examination being a means of doing that almost like it's a part of the healing kind of experience yeah. if I'm not sounding too um wishy-washy but mm. can you tell us more about that and whether the, the, is that established fact from your point of view or I think I think you need to think about it in terms of what so people can see certain things on their own bodies the things that they can't see are the things that it's more difficult to examine so I think they but I think sometimes people just need to understand whether what is happening to them is you know, is normal or okay or whether these things will carry on. 
you know, it just gives them the idea about whether they, it was appropriate, and part of it is always about, you know, is it appropriate to consult? Was it, a good, you know, did I need to come in here? Is that okay? Is there something wrong? With but if you're just talking to them and they're really worried, then potentially that's more problematic because you haven't actually tested it. You haven't done, you have obviously got your own expertise, but you haven't actually done anything. There's something around a ritual of examination and it just provides, I suppose it's a part of a level of care as well, isn't it? Rather than just listening to them. Right, so uh, yeah, I thought a really interesting interview from there from from Fiona Stevenson um, covered a lot. Should we um, should we go through some of it? Um, I mean, she started to talk about that, the expectations that people have, the the patient side of it, um, which I guess we're familiar with. But I, I thought it was really interesting. She was saying about you know this is actually useful for doctors to to see patients, which I don't think we think about much. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think obviously clinically, there's the value of seeing patients that but aside from that that what she was saying about how you know doctors um I often do a lot of valuable thinking while I'm kind of getting up getting my equipment you know just sorting things out in my head um you know it's just a bit of sort of quiet time during a consultation to kind of process stuff um and then yes the reassurance of you know an examination uh, you know not finding anything on examination can be really helpful um and I think, you know, if you don't have that, not only there's sort of the lack of reassurance for the patient, but then, you know, you're dealing with the sort of slightly uncertain, you know, the uncertainty of, well, what do I have to do here now as the clinician as well? So, yeah, very resonant what she was saying. Yeah. And it is hard to be sure, isn't it? When you're on the phone um, and you, you can almost sense that in the air between you and the patient sometimes. I think you're right. Conveying certainty on the phone is very difficult um, particularly if you don't have it <laughs> but I found that part interesting because you know actually as we're recording this podcast I'm seeing all of your faces and I still think and it made me wonder whether there isn't some level of reassurance or bonding or communal spirit to be had through a video interaction you know for the past two, three, four, five, six weeks, my interaction with people has become increasingly limited in the physical world and more located on my telephone or on my computer screen. And I, in some ways, feel closer to people because of the shared common experience we're all going through, but because we're connecting. So it made me wonder whether there isn't any level of reassurance or bonding to see, you know, what for some people would be the familiar face of their GP or their primary care doctor. Yes, absolutely. Um, another thing I thought was interesting was the about missing out on some of the things we we taught about a lot when we're training and, and I think experience all the time about the patient's expectations, like those misunderstandings that occur. You know, like what's their agenda really. Um, you know, when you're when you're in a rush, which we I think we are more more so thanks to coronavirus, um, I feel already I'm I'm skipping over much of that on on the phone or, or even in a, in a video call. Yeah, it's definitely not business as usual. We're not asking people about all their cancer screening and like when was the last time they did that, and we're not kind of taking the usual time that we would with 
some of the other, I don't know, just more casual conversation perhaps with people. Based on what Fiona was saying, I think the key is working out what works remotely and which channel. So, you know, what might telephone be better suited for? What about email and text? And then where does video fit in? And I guess this experience of, you know, all this remote work that we're doing now might help give us um, some knowledge that will help guide that, you know, afterwards, we might be better placed to think about how we organise things so that we use the right channel um, at the right time and for the right patient. And so shall we hear more about that um, with the interview with Trish Greenhouse, where we, where we do cover some of that. So I think maybe it's a good time to um, have a listen to what she said. So uh, I'm talking today to somebody who knows an awful lot about remote consultations, video consultations. Can I get you to introduce yourself? Yeah, my name is Trish Greenhouse. I uh, I was a GP for 30 years. I'm now Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences at the University of Oxford. And a lot of your work recently has been on video consultations. Is that is that right? Yes, we've been studying video consultations for about 10 years. We've been doing mainly qualitative research research into the patient experience, uh, the clinician experience, and also organisational change aspects. And of course, with coronavirus um, just suddenly kind of <laughs> coming up on us in, in this month, in, in March, we're all, all but stopped seeing patients face to face and um, doing almost all of our consultations remotely. I think the thing people need to remember about the video consultation and also telephone consultations for things other than triage, you know, not many people have been doing full consultations by phone. I know I know, we ring people up to, to give them results mm. and things like that. This is different. That change from the face-to-face to remote for the main consultations that we're doing, the default is probably the biggest change organisationally, operationally in primary care since the inception of the NHS. So one of the things I want to do is to try to reassure people today that this doesn't necessarily have to be a disaster. It's going to take a bit of getting used to, but actually the research is relatively reassuring about the quality and safety that can be achieved, particularly by video, but also on the phone. Well, can you just sum up that research for us? I think it'd be useful just to hear an overview of where that's where that's got to and how we can be reassured by um, by what, what research is out there already. Right. The first thing to say is that most of the research that's been done is not directly relevant to the current pandemic. And the reason for that is when people have done randomised controlled trials, hmm. when those studies have been done, the kind of patient that was picked to be part of those studies uh, has been someone with chronic stable Uh, disease. Now, that's all very well, but it isn't exactly a representative population for the kind of people that we're now going to be assessing by video who are acutely unwell, highly anxious, uh, and often you haven't got an existing ongoing relationship with them. And you're probably not going to be doing uh, the same consultation with them as you had last time. Whereas, of course, follow-ups for chronic disease management, everybody knows what, what, what you're checking up on. And it's sort of low stress, Um, low surprise kind of consultation. Having said that, 
there have been an awful lot of randomized controlled trials and they have they have shown that patient satisfaction, staff satisfaction, the kind of clinical things that are covered uh, with the exception of certain aspects of the physical examination, which are impossible, um, and also disease biomarkers all progress very similarly in the video group compared to the face-to-face group. The second piece of research that is relevant is the dynamics of the video consultation. So this is detailed qualitative research, something we call conversation analysis. And that has shown that at the beginning of a consultation by video, things are very different from in a face-to-face consultation. What happens is uh, there's often a bit of yelling at each other. Can you hear me? Can you see me? All that kind of thing. It doesn't feel or sound or look like a clinical consultation. But we've also demonstrated that after about 10 or 20 or 30 seconds, just getting set up, perhaps encouraging the patient to, to adjust their microphone or whatever, One party, and it's usually the clinician, sometimes the patient says, "Okay, let's get started. And then the consultation unfolds almost exactly the same way as a standard in-person consultation. And it is remarkable how similar the dynamic is. But that bit where you're getting started can feel a bit awkward. But don't worry, because we as humans are very good at repairing conversations and slotting into our roles. You be the doctor, I'll be the patient type thing. Once we've got the technology set up and we we know that we can see and hear each other. The other thing to say is that the uh, the technical aspects of video consultations uh, are not always perfect. Don't worry about those because, again, we've demonstrated that minor levels of lag and these minor visual problems uh, don't really interrupt what goes on. Major problems like, like uh, complete freezing, loss of audio, of course, do. So one of the things you need to do is take the patient's phone number, make sure that that's an up-to-date Uh, number that you've got on their record uh, and have one go at reconnecting if if you lose connection and then after that just phone them up but on the telephone and uh, you know when and warn the patient that you're going to do that Uh, and if we have that as a backup most of these consultations um, go fine technically well, that's very reassuring. Um, I guess what's difficult then in the COVID situation is, you know, if previously, you know, six months ago, if I was seeing someone with the flu or just acutely unwell, I've got my pulse oximeter, my blood pressure machine, all these things. And, you know, it's so helpful to have that. We, we need those objective measures, don't we, to make an assessment, but we don't have those with video. What, what do we do in, what do we do then with COVID-19 and, and how do you know when you've got enough information to make a safe decision? This is, this is the $64,000 question, isn't it? And uh, the first thing to say is that the respiratory physicians are saying that listening to the chest is not all that helpful. It often doesn't change your management. It is, it is a ritual that we've done. I was taught it at medical school. My son was taught it, you know, examine the, the, the chest. Actually, you can get quite a lot of information, particularly if you've got a video uh, link. You can take the patient's respiratory rate, which is one of the best predictors of of whether they are uh, in respiratory distress. Uh, Hopefully, the patient's got a thermometer. Temperature of above 38 is is, um, a a good warning sign that they may be uh, in the midst of uh, community-acquired pneumonia, COVID pneumonia, which is is obviously the, the thing that we're trying to pick up. 
uh, at an early stage so we can send the patient into hospital if necessary. Um, so it's temperature above 38, respiration above 20, heart rate above 100, those kind of things. It, it's not been shaped into a formal COVID score yet, but these are uh, based on a rapid review done by the Oxford Centre for Evidence-Based Medicine on the best physical signs to detect community-acquired pneumonia in a remote situation uh, in the midst of the epidemic. And now we've got this rough score, which um, I, I think people are hoping is like the new oxygen sats probe by right, video. The Roth score most certainly is not the new oxygen saturation. So Roth score turned up in a rapid review of uh, the question, how do we assess breathlessness in the acute setting over the phone? And most of the scores, like the MRC score and, and various others, were designed to be used in COPD clinics in the chronic situation, and they're not suitable. They, the questions are just not right. So the Roth score is take a deep breath, start with number one, count up to 30, and we measure how many seconds it takes for you to take a breath uh, when you've run out of puff. And if it's below eight seconds, that's why it's called the eight second test, it's got an 80% sensitivity uh, for picking up an oxygen saturation uh, below 95%. So it sounds as if it might be quite good. The problem with the Roth score is it's based on a single study of hospital patients not assessed over the phone uh, in a different country. I, I, from memory, I think it's from Israel. Uh, and uh, it's a paper that's never been cited. So I'm not sure that it's directly relevant to the situation we're in. It's the closest one we could find because it is about acute breathlessness. So what I did was I uh, did a quick survey of 50 people who assess breathlessness over the phone, most of whom were doctors, some were nurses, some were respiratory physiotherapists. So these are people who for years and years are listening and questioning people who are short of breath over the phone. And more of them said, don't use the Roth score than agreed that it might be useful. So the Roth score isn't necessarily wrong, but the question is, should we be introducing it at scale in this unprecedentedly uh, perilous situation that we're in? Uh, and on balance, I think not. We are, however, doing some research into the Roth score and hopefully uh, in a few months time, we'll be able to come back with the answer as to whether it should be added uh, to the questions that, that we're now recommending. Brilliant. Thank you. That's uh, extremely helpful. <laughs> um, I don't think I'll be using it, <laughs> to be honest. It seems to me that, yeah, those questions about the deterioration um, seem the most useful from, from what I'm gathering from, from reading about COVID-19 is you know, what, what was it today that it wasn't yesterday? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Breathing. And the ones mm. that NHS 111 use. So, so mm. um there's three questions that are used by NHS 111. I don't have them in, in front of me, but they are, again, sort of descriptive mm -hmm. questions mm -hmm. trying to capture the, the deterioration. And mm -hmm. uh, they have been user tested. In other words, the wording of those questions has been um, tested on lots of patients. So I wouldn't call it research, but it's, it's certainly uh, something that, that helps us get the wording right. And those are listed yep. in, the, in the BMJ article that I think is going to be linked to this uh, podcast. Uh, 
I mean, can we just acknowledge what an absolute powerhouse Professor Trish Greenhouse is? I mean, totally. I, mean, I follow I follow totally. her on Twitter, and she's just been, you know, uh, so active and doing all these rapid reviews of evidence, publishing that article with us on remote con- consultations. You know, like really trying to get the information that GPs need right now. I just think it's just incredible. And um, yeah, like massively grateful for all the work that she's doing. And yes, I mean, to your point, that is reassuring. There's much more, I think, there than I had realised. And I think, you know, some of that you know, very operational stuff about, you know, it's so interesting that, you know, we fall into our natural dynamic anyway, once we overcome the the technical difficulties. I think that's very reassuring. Um, although, you know, as I was listening to that, I kind of, I, I sort of, the picture that was running in my head was my own FaceTime calls with my parents and how often I'm just looking at their foreheads because they're not holding the phone properly. So I think I think those are, you know, easily overcome. Yeah. But it's um, nice to hear just, that, that you know, that's um it's not just us. It's not just me that, that does that. And it, and and I think that is a that is a barrier to me. Like I would think, oh I don't really want to do that because you know a video consultation because you know it would be a bit awkward, wouldn't it? I think that's a universal experience for all of us. And that's definitely (laughs) true for my um, parents and in-laws. But um, on that note, as she was talking about that, um, I did wonder, and I don't, you know, I haven't um, read enough of her research to know this, but it did make me wonder whether this is going to be a modality that's going to suit certain people better and whether there are going to be some inequities arising from the use of video consultation for this reason and whether it's like a mental barrier that patients themselves put forward like oh I'm never going to be able to figure out the technology or even if they're emailed the link you know whether they won't be able to open or they won't have you know a smartphone or they well like lots of different barriers that you could conceive of potentially um, stratifying people in terms of their ability to use the service. Yeah. It's difficult on that though, isn't it? I I think I'm probably guilty of um, making a few assumptions there or maybe um, that some people, you know, (laughs) I don't know if a certain age or whatever, wouldn't be able to do that, which is terrible. And I know it's just not true. So I would be interested to look into that a bit more, or maybe just, I, I guess, test it out myself in in my practice. I think the ubiquity of apps like WhatsApp and um, FaceTime, you know, the, the people are using this all the time in their personal lives. I think it's, um, I, I think we're right to be cautious of, you know, who actually can't, you know, are there groups of people for whom this is harder? But um yeah, I think maybe I, I'm guilty of it too, kind of underestimating or this kind of default assumption that if someone's above a certain age, this is going to be hard. Um, so yeah, definitely good to check those yeah. assumptions. I think. But increasingly, it's me, the, the, the one who struggles with the technology. So. <laughs> yeah, me yeah. too. Oh, oh my God, God, I've tried to use this house. Sorry, this is a tangent. No, it doesn't matter. House party oh, yeah, though. Right. It's just, yeah, what's that all about? <laughs> I feel ancient I'm using that. I'm trying to log into Marco uh, anyway. Polo for my toddler, my preschooler to connect with his kids. And I just, don't understand <laughs> it's overwhelming yeah um should we look more specifically at the coronavirus um part of the interview um in particular well let, let's come on to the rough score in a minute because um i think that's really interesting and then uh, but 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 you know that you can get respiratory rate temperature maybe maybe heart rate 
Um, I was reassured by that as well, I think. Yeah, and I liked what she said about how, you know, we think the pulmonary exam is going to provide so much value, but that it sounds like we're potentially putting too much weight or importance on that and that these other indicators, which are easier to measure and which can be in most cases measured remotely are still, you know, more the more important things to um, look at. It did make me wonder what equipment could you reasonably expect patients to have? Like maybe a thermometer, you know, definitely not a pulse oximeter, question mark. Like, what could you really reasonably expect people to have in terms of medical equipment laying around their house? And also, you know, how how do you vouch for reliability? Like at the moment, you know, I know I've got a question about, you know, strip thermometers versus tympanic ones and how reliable are they? But I, I mean, I guess just in the situation we're in now, you just do your best, I guess, and, and work with what you have. But really, yeah, I've had the same questions. So the rough score then, have you, have you heard of this, I review? It's been going around online a lot, like, hey guys, take yeah, a look at this. I mean, yeah, in the context of it being like the answer to all our problems yeah. at the moment. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I'm revisiting yeah. that now. But it was nice to see that good old history taking kind of won out in the end. You know, and, and I'd agree with, with that conclusion, particularly based on that very persuasive argument. But we probably do need, I mean, I wonder if that work is being done where we can come up with a something a useful score um over the video it sounds like it's happening mm. to um you know if it's not the roth score then then what is it mm. that we can use because there's definitely a need for something um you know a measure that you can use uh, for reassurance or for that kind of uh, sequential kind of um monitoring of someone and whether or not they're deteriorating yeah. One thing that it also made me think is um, Trish did a great job of also being clear on the population of people in whom these randomized control trials have been done before and that mm -hmm. our, our actual suspected COVID patients or other people are at this extreme level of anxiety. And mm. in the patient that I've been trying to you know, discuss at what point she needs to go to the hospital. It's very obvious that anxiety is playing a really significant mm. role here and probably contributing to her chest tightness. Mm. So I think there's a yeah. lot more um, thought here that we should do, you know, like, yes, history taking is so important, but, you know, I'm worried about those patients that have so much anxiety and maybe aren't good judge of their actual clinical status. And then if our metric is what can you not do today that you could do yesterday, I'm just worried that they're gonna suddenly decline and it will be mm. too late. Such an important point. Well, um, that might be a good place to, to end the, the discussion, really. Uh, thank you, Jenny, for cheering me up so much. Um, <laughs> um, and that probably leads us on to our next episode, which um, is available now to listen to uh, about the fear or, or fear, uh, in, uh, particularly in coronavirus times. So um, you can listen to that now um, wherever you get your 
podcast from and that's it for this episode of deep breath in uh, thank you uh, jenny thanks tom and navjoids thank you very much thank you thanks many thanks to trish and fiona and a big thank you to the band childcare for letting us use their music you can find them on spotify where you can also find us whichever podcast app you use please send us lots of stars and subscribe to us so you don't miss out on new episodes We'd love to hear from you. Use the hashtag deep breath in or email practice at bmj.com. So we'll leave you with our deep breath out. At the end of a busy podcast, like the end of a busy day, we want to give you time to have a deep breath out. This is the bit of the podcast, which is a break from the day-to-day grind of being a GP. A moment to give yourself some space. Please send your suggestions. The email again, practice at bmj.com or hashtag deep breath in. As it's the first episode, I'll go first. I've been listening to a podcast by Rob Orton called The Rob Orton Daily Podcast. These podcasts are just a couple of minutes of him reciting a funny poem or story. They can be a bit moving and definitely very different. And this one's called Entertainment. Enjoy. Entertainment. We'll treat it as entertainment, shall we? What? What should we treat as entertainment? That tree over there, the one with the sky behind it. Look, you can see the clouds moving in between the branches. Yeah, okay. Has the entertainment started yet? Yes, it has. We've missed the beginning, haven't we? Yes, we have. Will we get to see the end? No, we won't. We have to make the most of the bits we get to see. Catch them in our thought nets. A quickly reversing car. The bright colours of the junk mail on the doormat. The smile of someone you like. Complicated things that seem so simple. The sun shining on the last orange in the fruit bowl. Barbecue smoke passing across the in-bloom passion flower. The blue of a television shining through a caravan window. We are so futuristic to those who are gone. Historic to those who are to come. They will wonder what it was like for us. We owe it to them to have a look at it all. While we've still got the chance 